Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. Here we are on the second episode of our recurring King Arthur series. This week, we're talking about The Round Table. The story this week is shorter than usual, so we'll have a little more time for some detail. Now, there aren't a lot of details about The Round Table, but the story I'm going to read today has a decent description. As you might expect, there's more to it than that, and we'll dive into it a bit. The short tale of The Round Table that I'm reading today is a continuation of the same text that I used in the first Arthur episode. Basically, these are retellings of the stories from Lamort d'Arthur. I'll fill you in on some interesting things I found out about the round table after the story. And now, as published in Stories from Lamort d'Arthur and the Mabinosian, retold by Beatrice Clay in 1920, The Round Table. Thus, Arthur was made king. But he had to fight for his own, for eleven great kings drew together and refused to acknowledge him as their lord, and chief amongst the rebels was King Lot of Orkney, who had married Arthur's sister, Bellicent. By Merlin's advice, Arthur sent for help overseas to Ban and Bors, two great kings who ruled in Gaul. With their aid, he overthrew his foes in a great battle near the river Trent and then he passed with them into their own lands and helped them drive out their enemies. So there was ever great friendship between Arthur and the kings Ban and Bors, and all their kindred, and afterwards some of the most famous knights of the round table, were of that kin. Then King Arthur set himself to restore order throughout the kingdom. To all who would submit and amend their evil ways he showed kindness, But those who persisted in oppression and wrong he removed, putting in their places others who would deal justly with the people. And because the land had become overrun with forest during the days of misrule, he cut roads through the thickets, that no longer wild beasts and men, fiercer than the beasts, should lurk in their gloom, to the harm of the weak and defenseless. Thus it came to pass that soon the peasant plowed his fields in safety, and where had been wastes, Men dwelt again in peace and prosperity. Amongst the lesser kings whom Arthur helped to rebuild their towns and restore order was King Leo de Grance of Cameliard. Now Leo de Grance had one fair child, his daughter Guinevere. And from the time that first he saw her, Arthur gave her all his love. So he sought counsel of Merlin, his chief adviser. Merlin heard the king sorrowfully, and he said, Sir King, when a man's heart is set, he may not change. Yet it had been well if ye had loved another. So the king sent his knights to Leo de Grance to ask of him his daughter, and Leo de Grance consented, rejoicing to wed her to so good and knightly a king. With great pomp the princess was conducted to Canterbury, and there the king met her, and they too were wed by the archbishop in the great cathedral, amid the rejoicings of the people. On that same day did Arthur found his Order of the Round Table, the fame of which was to spread throughout Christendom and endure through all time. Now the Round Table had been made for King Uther Pendragon by Merlin, 
who had meant thereby to set forth plainly to all men the roundness of the earth. After Uther died, King Leodegrance had possessed it, but when Arthur was wed, he sent it to him as a gift, and great was the king's joy at receiving it. One hundred and fifty knights might take their places about it, and for them Merlin made sieges, or seats. One hundred and twenty-eight did Arthur knight at that great feast. Thereafter, if any sieges were empty, at the high festival of Pentecost new knights were ordained to fill them, and by magic was the name of each knight found inscribed in letters of gold in his proper siege. One seat only long remained unoccupied, and that was the siege perilous. No knight might occupy it until the coming of Sir Galahad, for, without danger to his life, none might sit there who was not free from all stain of sin. With pomp and ceremony did each knight take upon him the vows of true knighthood, to obey the king, to show mercy to all who asked it, to defend the weak, and for no worldly gain to fight in a wrongful cause." And all the knights rejoiced together, doing honor to Arthur and to his queen. Then they rode forth to right the wrong and help the oppressed. And by their aid the king held his realm in peace, doing justice to all. It certainly is a grand ideal, isn't it? The round table. I think it's one of the symbols of the King Arthur legend that helps it to endure. See, if you dig very deeply at all into the court and the nobility and the knighthood in medieval Europe and the centuries before, you'll find corrupt people and backstabbing and all sorts of unsavory things. Now, I'm not saying that there would have been no one inclined to stand up to injustice or to put wrongs to right, but more often than not, it seems that just wasn't the case. And so the story of Arthur and the Round Table and his knights turns out to be a romantic ideal. What the people telling the stories then and now would hope for in the best of cases. The reason I think the Round Table is so appealing, first of all, is because I think we're all a little enamored of the idea that anyone, at any time, can be a hero as worthy as anyone else. It only takes courage and an opportunity. Arthur, in his wisdom, made use of an inherited table in a way that revolutionized the rule of a monarch. He stepped off of his dais and set himself equal to others. The round table that's mentioned here, an heirloom from Arthur's father, Uther, was meant as a model of the earth, and Arthur turned it into a symbol of equality that I think still resonates with us a bit today. Merlin helps Arthur along in his vision with a set of magic chairs that always have the proper name of the knight. Leave it to Merlin to add a little excessive flair. And of course, the Siege Perilous, the open seat for the one who would be so free of his human sinful nature that they could sit there without immediately dying from their impurity. Eventually, it would be Galahad's seat, and he would be the one who would manage to complete the quest for the Grail. We'll get to that. I did a little looking into the possible historical origins of the round table. And once again, people are divided on this one. Arthur may or may not have been inspired by a real leader, more likely a warlord or a general than a king. 
and likewise the round table may have been inspired by something as well, but if so, likely not a literal table. There is a round table out there, from the 13th century. It's hanging on the wall at Winchester Castle in Winchester, England. They've dated it, and it's definitely an authentic table from the 1200s. Look it up, and you'll see a huge round oaken table painted with the names of Arthur's knights and with a large portrait of Henry VIII, who had it repainted. Tradition states that the table was made for a tournament to celebrate the marriage of one of the daughters of Edward I. It is probably as close as we're going to get to a genuine round table as described in the legends. But, the other story I came across might be the origin of the ideal behind the table, if not the actual table. According to Jason Hamilton, the editor-in-chief at ArthurianLegends.com, there are historians and researchers who believe the origin of the round table might be in Chester, England. Without getting into high weeds, they believe that a Roman amphitheater that was discovered there might be where the knights gathered to receive instructions and speak to the king. It could seat nearly a thousand, and they say that the king and his knights occupying the front rows may have been where the idea of the round table came from. And further, the historical Arthur, tenuous though he might be, is linked to some historical battles, and possibly one of those battles took place at Chester. They go so far as to say that Camelot itself, the idea more than the actual castle, may have been inspired there too. Now, this wasn't presented as fact, more of a theory, but it's definitely an attractive one to me. I really hope that their research bears out. Have a look at it yourself at ArthurLegends.com. I can't wait to get further into the Arthur stories with you. We'll have to cover more about Camelot and the Grail and the Knights. There's a lot of material there, so definitely stay tuned. So, if you're having fun listening to Fado, you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. I'm on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Leave me a review or a comment, and I might even be able to read it on the air. You can also keep up and follow me on Facebook as well as Instagram. I'm at Fado Podcast. And now, if you want to support me more directly, you can become a patron. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There will be behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, and also merch. My Fado stickers are here, and I really like how they turned out. If you become a patron, I can guarantee you one in your membership letter. That's right, I'll send you a personally handwritten note in the mail with a sticker. Also, if you join, you'll get a mention here on the show. All right, that about wraps things up. Watch for episode 14 coming out on August 23rd. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.